Hey, my name's Sean. I'm one of the pastors here. It is good to be here with y'all. If this is the first time that you've been at Lakeside, we want to say an extra special welcome to you. And if you've been here for 30 years, thanks for being here this morning. It's been a while since I've had a chance to connect with you guys. And so I thought that I would tell you one of my favorite stories. It's actually a true story. It's from my life. It's one of the greatest moments of my life, actually, because it was down to the very last game of the season. And it was down to the last two minutes of the last game of the season. And I was coaching this third grade basketball team. Have you ever tried to coach third graders? Have you ever tried to herd cats? It's about the same. And it was fun. It was this great season. And I was coaching basketball. And and one of my jobs as the coach that year was to make sure that every single player at some point during the season had an MVP game or at least had an MVP type moment. And then what they would get is at the end of that game, I would reward them with a white star. They would put it on their jersey, and they would wear it around like I'm an, I'm an MVP. And there were other color stars that represented other things as well. But we're on the last game, and so far in this season, every single player had been recognized except for one, the coach's son. My, my older son was playing, this is about 12 years ago, and, and, and he was not a good basketball player at all. And so now we're in the last game, and we're at the end of this game, and everybody had scored a basket in this game except for one player, the coach's son. And so I did what any good father would do. I gave my son the ball, and I told everybody else, get out of the way, because he's coming to the basket, and he sure did, and he went to the basket, and he missed, and he went to the basket, and he shot, and he missed, and he missed, and he missed, and you could sort of see what was going around, that all the parents were around the court, the parents on the other team started to cheer for him, and you, you, you just sort of would hear this collective awe every time he missed, and finally, there was about 10 seconds left, and he had the ball at the top of the key. And I remember this part like it was in slow motion. It's the only way I can remember this part because he went down the right side of the court and there was nothing there. And so he backed away and he went back up to the top and everybody was just screaming, shoot it, just shoot it. I mean, after this, it was really over. No more games. I looked to the right and the bench of third graders was standing on their feet and they're just shouting his name and they're saying, shoot the ball. And he goes over to the left and there's nothing there. And then with just a second, left, somehow he slips onto the left side of the baseline and he lets a runner go. And you know, I just remember watching the ball. Oh. And it hits the rim. And then hit the rim again. And no exaggeration, you know that little flat part on, on the top of the rim? The ball sits up there for about a second and a half. And I thought my heart was going to beat out of my chest. And then it just went in. I mean, it was fantastic. One of the best moments of my life. The parents are jumping up and down, and they're looking at me, pointing at me, and I'm pointing at them because as parents, they they just knew. And then I looked to my right, and all those third graders were gone. They were out on the court. They had dogpiled my son on the court. Everybody's high-fiving and cheering. Parents are coming over. Kids from the other team are high-fiving him. It was fantastic. I mean, to see my son make that basket was amazing. But to see my son celebrated over with the kind of joy that was in that moment, well, that made my heart explode. There is nothing quite like being celebrated over. 
Because when we celebrate over somebody, it communicates incredible value, almost like nothing else in life. Do you remember a time when somebody celebrated over you? I mean, maybe it was something small. It was, a, it, it was a thank you card. It was this little gesture. It was a word of encouragement. Or maybe maybe it was something big. It was like a big birthday party or a graduation or some goal that you had met at work or a promotion or something like that, maybe on a sports team. When we celebrate over people, we, commun- we communicate value and everybody has value. Everybody has value. In fact, our stories begin with value. If you go back far enough in the story of humanity, our stories begin with a song of celebration. I'm so glad that the writers of Scripture decided not to tell the origin story in a mathematical or a scientific type of way. I'm so glad that the Spirit of God influenced the writers of Scripture to start the Bible with a poem, with a song. And if you read it in Hebrew, it's got a cadence. It's got this rhythm, and there's these stanzas. And at the end of every stanza, God sings a line. And he says, it is good. It is good. It is good. And then on the very last stanza, right after God had formed humanity in his image, which communicates such dignity and depth of value to all people, God stands back and he looks at all he's made and he sings the song of celebration. Ah, it is very good. Our stories begin with a song of celebration with incredible value. And so over the next five weeks, we thought it would be a great idea to just talk about some different things, some things that we can actually do in our lives. We can do them as a community, but we can do them as individuals to communicate value to one another. As God has communicated value to us, we just want to pass that on. And so we're going to start today, actually, by looking at Jesus and how he did that. In fact, all five weeks, we're going to watch Jesus. I always say, if you want to know what God's like, look at Jesus. And if you want to know what Jesus is like, then, then read the ancient biographies. Sometimes we call them gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, at the very beginning of the New Testament part of the Bible. Because you see Jesus up close and personal. And when you see Jesus up close and personal, you get this feel, you get this sense for what God was like and how God interacts with people. And that's what we see. So we're going to be looking at five of the different times that Jesus interacted with people. And we're going to start with a story that's, that I've never taught from before. It's, it, it's, it's new to me in terms of really trying to dig underneath this story and find out more about it. So I'm excited to share it with you this morning. If you have your Bible, turn to John chapter 2. And if you don't have your Bible, you can open up your, uh, your phone and, and pull up the YouVersion app. If you don't have that, we use that every single week here at Lakeside. It's a great tool. Sometimes we put a ton of notes in there. Sometimes we put resources. Sometimes we just put the passage in there. But you can use that. And if all else fails, we have the words up on the screen as well. John chapter 2. I just want to read for you the first 11 verses of this story. It's a story that's a narrative. It's written sort of like a parable as well. John writes, On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana 
in Galilee. And so we've talked about Galilee at Lakeside Church. We've talked about the fact that Galilee was a poor place. It had a bad rep- reputation. It was kind of like growing, out in the, growing up out in the sticks. It wasn't the center of power. It wasn't the center of money. That's in the south. That's in Judea and in Jerusalem. When God comes to earth, he comes as a human, but he comes as a Galilean human. Jesus grew up in Nazareth, which wasn't too far from Cana. And there was an ancient saying that said, nothing good comes out of Nazareth. And so this is the heart of God. He chooses to come to the least of these. And this is where this wedding takes place. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, my hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from about 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, so they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, everyone brings out the choice wine. And that word choice is actually the word good in the Greek, and it's it's a word that Paul will use later on in one of his letters where he says, if anything is praiseworthy, think about such things. And he uses that word a couple different times in this story. Everyone brings out the praiseworthy, the good, the choice wine first. And then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. And I think they didn't have punctuation in, in the ancient Greek that the Bible was written in. But I get, I, there's probably a big question mark right there. Like, you've saved the best for, our, for last? What were you thinking? Nobody does that. Verse 11, what Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory. Whenever we hear glory in the Bible, there's a long trail of glory in the Bible from the very beginning to the very end. And it's a bit esoteric. It sounds a bit, you know, Christianese. But glory essentially is the character of God. Most of the time, the writers meant something like love, justice, setting things right, or beauty, this creative power. Sometimes his goodness or his grace or his mercy or his holiness, but the glory of God is his character. It's who he is. Jesus performs this sign, the first, John tells us, where he begins to open the door to who he is. It's a big moment in the gospel of John. And then it says his disciples believed in him. And that word believed, it's, it, it's an okay choice for, for a translation, but it means more than just a cognitive belief. The word actually comes from the same word that the original word faith comes from in the Greek. It's really the same word. So maybe a better, a better choice would be trust or faith or believe down to my toes that you are who you say you are, Jesus. Jesus. 
Have you been to a wedding lately? Anybody been to a wedding lately? Anybody have any weddings coming up this summer? Anybody in a wedding lately? You know, you, you buy that dress and you only wear it once, although I hear that's kind of changing. Young people are getting a little smarter on what they wear in weddings these days. Have you had to plan a wedding in your lifetime? Have you been around somebody that's had to plan a wedding in their lifetime? I've had the chance to officiate a ton of weddings, about 25 years worth. I don't know how many. And it is such a privilege. I mean, to stand with the, with the groom and the bride in that moment, up close and personal, to see their faces when they take the most sacred, the, the most beautiful vows that two people will take towards one another. I mean, it is fantastic. I love it every single time. But I have also had a front row seat to the stress, <laughs> to the anxiety, to the pure exhaustion on the faces of the co-stars of the wedding. You know who the co-stars are, right? The bride and the mother of the bride or the family of the bride. You know, you know how that goes when you're planning a wedding. It is uh, a stressful thing. I was talking to a couple last hour that are in the middle of planning a wedding, and they can't believe how many details they have to think of. Weddings in our culture are a big deal still. I mean, they are a huge deal. Did you know that the average cost of a wedding in the U.S. is about $33,000? I mean, that's crazy, huh? Actually, the size of weddings, according to some studies, have gotten smaller but more expensive because young couples these days, they want to they want to have this experience. And that's a little bit what an ancient Jewish wedding was like. It was an experience. It wasn't just a wedding day. It wasn't just a wedding weekend. An ancient Jewish wedding was an entire week, and it was a sacred affair. People would travel from miles around, most of them, especially in Galilee, probably walked from one town to the next. And it was an obligation to attend a wedding and have a good time. It was a holy thing. It was a religious duty to show up and show your support. This couple had been promised to each other. Their parents had met and arranged this marriage long before they were of age. And so the families had been looking forward to this for a long time. This was a bonding thing in the ancient culture. And it was a sacred and social duty to show up and have a good time. Some of the ancient rabbis say that people were so, it was so necessary to have a good time that they would eat and they would drink as much as they could because as they celebrated that couple, they were saying, we love you, we approve, this is great. And so it's no wonder that this wine runs out at this ancient wedding. It doesn't mean it was right to drink all that wine, but, but, but it was something in that culture that they tried to communicate value through. It was a sacred religious duty to host the wedding. And in this culture, it was the bridegroom and his family. So it was kind of the other way around. And if you're a father and you have a son right now, you're saying, amen, I'm in my culture. Actually, 41% of, the, of, of weddings in the U.S. are paid for by the bride's family still. And then I think there's about 40-some percent paid for by the couple themselves. And so the parents of boys are still getting off. You know, that's, that's, that's pretty good stuff. So anyway, back to ancient Jewish culture. These bridegrooms, they had this sacred duty to show people hospitality, to receive them in, to make sure that they were provided for for the whole week of this wedding. 
And on top of all that, ancient Jewish culture was what sociologists call an honor-shame culture. There's different types of cultures, you know. There's guilt and innocent cultures. There's fear and punishment cultures. Primarily in the West here, we live in like a guilt-innocent culture. We know that we're guilty. Our conscience tells us that we're guilty. It's a very individual thing, or at least there's a law in black and white that will tell us that we're wrong about something. So it's this guilt-innocence. You don't want to be guilty. You want to be innocent in our culture primarily, although social media is changing a bit of that. In many Eastern cultures or Near Eastern cultures, they live in an honor-shame society where it's not just the individual, but it's the collective conscience that tells you whether or not you deserve honor or shame. You may have heard the phrase, I don't want to lose face or I don't want to dishonor my family. That's the worst thing that you can experience and the family or the community can shun you or receive you back. And so on top of these social duties and the family relationships and the sacred religious duties that were all tied into this wedding week, you had a culture that was based in honor and shame. And it's in this culture that Jesus is at a wedding. And his mom's at a wedding. And his disciples, his closest followers, are at this wedding. And there's a major problem. There's no more wine. Now, I've I've been to a lot of weddings, as I've said, but I've I've been to weddings where there's no wine at all, and I've been to there's I've been to weddings where there's way too much wine. Like they didn't need this miracle; they had it covered. They 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 were good even before the vows were taken. They had enough wine flowing. But I've never been to a wedding where they've run out of food. Or drinks, where the music stopped halfway through, where the best part of the wedding, the wedding cake, was, you know, ran out. You know the wedding cake is, is amazing, right? I've seen them cut the big slices at first, and then the person that's cutting the slices looks out at all the people they have to feed, and the slices get smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller. Our wedding cake, okay, this is a little tangent, but, but Holly and, and, and my wedding cake, it, it was so good. It's the best wedding cake. I, we didn't even put it in the freezer, that whole tradition, and a year later you eat it. We ate it on our honeymoon. We just, we took the cake with us. Excuse me. I'm a, we're going to eat this. It was fantastic. I have never seen, never been to a wedding where only half of the people were served. This is a major problem going on. This is an honor-shame society. What's going to happen? How is this couple going to be launched out? And Mary is there. And Mary knows that there's a problem. And Mary decides to go to Jesus to solve this problem And then Mary orders the servants around and tells them what to do. All of those are signs that most likely Mary was an insider at this wedding. Like an insider, like she knew the bridegroom, probably related to the bridegroom. And if she was related to the bridegroom, then Jesus was related to the bridegroom. This is a a personal story. And Mary comes to Jesus and asks him for his help. And what does Jesus say? Woman, why do you involve me? Okay, maybe he didn't say it that way. Exactly. You know, woman, why do you involve me? Actually, if we're going to be like technical, he didn't, he didn't even say those words at all. 
when we read the Bible, we read a book that's been translated. And so the Bible was written in Greek. It was written in ancient Greek, Koine Greek to be technical, which was the common Greek of Jesus' day. And when people are translating the Bible into another language, they have to make choices and they have to make interpretive choices. I asked my Greek teacher in seminary one time, what's the best translation? I want the best one. And she was really sarcastic. She said, the best translation is the original Greek. You should learn it. <laughs> and I was like, okay, it's too hard. Just give me, you know, give me some tools. And uh, she goes, no, all of these English translations are fantastic. We have a wealth of translations in the English language. It's fantastic. But sometimes things and thoughts don't really get across the best way. And so technically what Jesus says in the Greek is, what to me and to you? which is why we need translations. <laughs> you know, what does that mean? What to me and to you, and, and, and what makes it even more difficult is, is that that phrase was a Hebrew idiom. It's like, it's like when we say it's raining cats and dogs. Well, it's not raining cats and dogs, right? We know what we mean by that. And so the ancient Jewish people knew what this idiom meant. And, and if you read the rabbis, there's sort of some arguments on how it was used, but basically there, there is some agreement on the fact that it probably meant if you have a problem, I have a problem. If you don't have a problem, then, then I don't have a problem. And you could use it in different ways. Like you could pass somebody on the street that, that you really didn't like, and you would go, do we have a problem here? Okay, then, well, then we have no problem here. But I don't think that's how Jesus said it to his mom, you know? I, 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 think, I think that Jesus understood the situation. And I think what Jesus was really saying to his mom was, what do you want me to do for you? What do you want me to do for you? It's a question that all of us need to hear God asking us. In your life, God looks at you and says, what, what do you want me to do for you? With your past and the pain that you feel from that, what do you want me to do for you? With the future that may be fuzzy, what do you want me to do for you? In the stress of today, as you came in the doors and you sit here and you bring a life with you, the relationships that you're facing, the financial struggles that you may be facing, whatever it might be, God says, what do you want me to do for you in this situation? Mary doesn't even answer Jesus. At least John doesn't record it. She just goes to the servants and says, hey, do whatever he tells you to do, which is a phenomenal show of trust. And we can't miss that. This is the Mary who watched Jesus grow up. And something's changing. Something's shifting. Jesus says, my hour has not yet come. What's he talking about there? That's a very common way of saying, I, I have not launched off into what I'm going to launch off into because an hour is going to come and something radical is going to happen. It's not quite here. We're right on the edge of it. And I think that day, Mary started to look at Jesus a little bit different. And she submits to Jesus and says, do whatever he tells you to do because I trust that it'll be the best decision ever. And what does Jesus do? 
he makes a ton of wine. I mean, the guy makes between 120 and 180 gallons of wine, and he doesn't just make that much wine, right? He makes the best wine. I mean, this is 0030 Chateau Jesus. It's like top shelf stuff here, something I will probably never, well, I, I will never taste it. It's gone. But, you know, I mean, he doesn't mess around. He's making some good vintage here, and he makes a ton of it, over 908 bottles to be exact, if those water ceremonial washing jugs were 30 gallons each. I mean, what are they going to do with all that wine? We've already established that there's a bunch of luscious at this wedding, so I don't know. You know, they've already run out of the good wine. They've run out of the, the other wine. You know, they celebrated. They've said, we love you, we love you, and there's none, nothing left. But are they halfway through the week? Maybe. Are they towards the end of the wedding week? We don't know. But there was, there was a lot of wine. I mean, Jesus sometimes, when you read the stories in the Gospels, it's it's like he almost is like extravagant. You know, he's like, it's like he's wasteful sometimes. In John chapter 6, he feeds thousands of people and they pick up 12 baskets full of food left over. I mean, like, really, Jesus? Like, you had to go that extravagant? Near the end of his life, there's this woman who comes to Jesus and she breaks a bottle of perfume over his head. And the bottle of perfume is worth a year's wages. Jesus was known as a drunkard and a glutton. And he would go to these parties and he just, he knew how to celebrate. One of the reasons I wanted to talk about celebration is because I'm not good at it. I am, this is, this is an aspirational talk for me, I tell you. I, 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 was, I was brought up in this in this culture of like responsibility. And I was brought up in this very kind of narrow stream of Christianity that said, you work hard and and you got to have a good work ethic and you got to be responsible and you got to have goals. And when you finish that goal, then it's nose to the grindstone. And then you, and then you go for the next goal and you finish that, you know, you cross that finish line and you just go, 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 go. Come on, Protestant work ethic. And somewhere along the line, I never learned how to really celebrate. A few weeks ago, I was hanging out with a good friend of mine, and I, I've been telling some people in the lobby that I, I laughed harder than I've laughed in a decade. Proverbs tells us that laughter is good for the soul. I mean, have you ever had like a really, really good laugh where your gut hurts and you can feel the endorphins, like you start feeling warm and lightheaded? There is something physiological biological that's beautiful about laughing and celebrating. And so not only does it uh, communicate incredible value, it's good for our hearts to celebrate as well. And Jesus was a master at it. He creates this wine, and, and, and I love the writers of the Gospels because they had a way with words. They had a way of stringing things together. They're inspired by God, but they make these strategic choices. John talks about wine in John chapter 2. And then in John chapter 6, he talks about bread. And right before Jesus goes to the cross, he takes a cup of wine, and he takes some bread, and he gives it to his disciples, and he says, take, eat. This represents my body and my blood. It's given for you. John is talking about bigger things than just a wedding. Do you see how he begins his story? He begins it by saying, on the third day. Have you ever heard that before on the third day? 
like at the beginning of, the, of this month when we celebrated Easter, Resurrection Weekend, Jesus dies and then on the third day, he rises from the dead. John did this, he, he did this all the time. At the very beginning of his gospel, uh, in, in John chapter 1, he says, in the beginning, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, talking about Jesus. In the beginning. Have you heard that phrase before? If you haven't, it's how the Bible starts. In Genesis chapter 1, it says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So if I'm Jewish, and I think that something amazing has happened, and that the whole world is different, and I start my gospel by saying, in the beginning, what am I trying to say? When I start this story by saying, on the third day, what am I trying to say? When Jesus says, my hour has not yet come, and you sort of hear this impending sense of, but it's coming. What is John trying to say? I think what he's trying to say is something that the Apostle Paul picked up on in one of his letters in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, where John says, if anyone is in Christ, that's, that's also esoteric a bit, if anyone has a trust, surrendered relationship with the risen Jesus, not a perfect relationship, but a trust, surrendered relationship, if anyone is in Christ, new creation. Old is gone and the new has come. I think John's trying to talk about this new explosive time where the kingdom of God would just explode onto the earth with the, with the risen Jesus. And he sends his earliest followers out into the world to say, bring this new creation to the world. Go out into the world and celebrate people. Show them that I love them by loving them yourselves. Wine is interesting because all the way through the Hebrew scriptures, to have a lot of wine was symbolic of God's blessing. This is just how people thought. It, 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 was, a, it was a metaphor at times. It was a symbol at times. But if you had wine, it symbolized that you were blessed by God. And if you didn't have wine, then it symbolized that you were not blessed by God. And so in the middle of this wedding, in John chapter 2, at the beginning of his gospel, that's actually written near the end of the first century to a whole bunch of Christians that needed to be encouraged because they were going through a difficult time, he tells the story of a wedding, a sacred event, where they ran out of wine. And who is there to provide more wine than they could possibly ever need? Jesus. This is the extravagant love that God has for you. In the middle of all of this theology, in the middle of all of this storytelling, Jesus says he cares for you. He cares for you. You matter to Jesus. And we want you to know that. At Lakeside Church, we want to be a place that can celebrate as many people as possible.
I mean, we want to be a place where we know how to celebrate. In fact, one of the ways that we celebrate at Lakeside all the time are these things that we call baptism parties. And we have one coming up on May 20th. We want to invite all of you guys to the lake baptism out at Beals Point. In fact, you might be saying to yourself right now, but it's going to cost me 12 bucks to get in there, and I don't even know anybody that's getting baptized. But what you don't know is that we're going to be standing at the gate, and we're going to be paying your way in because we want everybody to come. It's going to be a party. We want you to bring food. We're going to walk down to the lake, and we're going to cheer on people that are following Jesus in baptism. Baptism is this picture. It's another symbol that the Bible gives us of God's blessing. When we go into the water, it represents that we are identifying with Jesus, that he died and he was buried. And whatever is in our past, all right, we're going we're gonna to die to all of that junk and we're going to come out of the water just like he rose from the dead. And we're going to come out of that and we're going to say, I'm going to have this trust, surrendered relationship with you. I want to be a new creation. There's no magic in the water. It's, it's symbolic, but it tells the story of God celebrating over each and every one of his children. So maybe you want to follow the Lord in baptism. If you do, I want, you, I want to invite you to come to one of my favorite things that we do at Lakeside. It's called Begin at Lakeside. It's a class that I teach three times a year. There's a three-hour version, but this version that I'm going to do is the two-hour version. So, so yeah, you're, it, it's great. You, you, you get in and you get out, but we're going to go from Genesis all the way to Revelation. We're going to talk about Christianity 101. We're going to talk about the story of God. We're going to talk about the story of Lakeside. Where did we come from and what are our values and all of that stuff, and we'll talk about baptism and begin at Lakeside. I love every time we do this class. So I want to invite you to register for that. When I think about my son making that basket, my heart still beats. Because I love his socks off. <laughs> I love my boys. I love my girl. And I love it when other people celebrate them. Oh, man, to be a parent and to watch your child be celebrated over. Our Heavenly Father, our Heavenly Parent, longs to see us celebrate over one another. So I'm going to give you some homework. You didn't know you were going to get homework, but I'm going to give you some. This week, you got seven days. I want you to choose somebody to celebrate this week. And then share the story of that celebration with somebody else. You're not bragging about it. You're just telling somebody else, hey, hold me accountable because I want to celebrate somebody. And this is going to be great. Maybe it's just small. Maybe you, you go to the everyone booth or you write somebody a note. Maybe you're going to do something big for somebody. I don't know. That's, that's up to you. But celebrate somebody this week. And when you do, you will be communicating incredible value to that person. And everybody has value. Would you pray with me this morning? God, thanks so much that you have instilled incredible value over all people. You made us in your image. You sing a song of celebration over us. But you didn't stop there. You sacrificed yourself for each and every one of us, and we thank you for that. And now you live and you rule and you reign to give us new life, to transform our lives. And so, God, we thank you for that, and we pray for that, and we hope for that. And may we be a church that knows how to celebrate one another. We love you, and we praise you in your name. Amen.